With perspective, we get to see issues, problems, solutions, and thoughts in a different light. A problem might end up seeming bigger or small. With perspective, the solutions might end up being infinite or limited. Chemshabongo is a podcast that seeks to trigger a change in how you perceive things, how you react to events, and how you approach things that you do. We do this by hosting a number of voices, presenting their different perspectives. For the last part of the show, we'll be having an excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. By the end of this episode, we hope that you find more power in what is behind your eyes and stop focusing solely on what is in front of them. This is Chimshabongo. Hello, my name is Obi Obirodiambo. I'm a writer, strategic communications scholar, and social commentator. In this edition of Chemshabongo, I will address myself to the issue of tolerance. Now, a few days ago, Salman Rushdie, famous or infamous for his authorship of the Satanic Verses, was stabbed just as he was preparing to give a lecture in New York. A few years back, while in a fellowship at Emory University in Georgia, USA, I attended a lecture by Salman Rushdie. The level of security at that event was phenomenal. It was the year Slumdog Millionaire scooped many awards at the Oscars. I remember because Salman spoke about how Hollywood or Bollywood created images of other countries and other people. He felt India's story was being manipulated through that movie. A few years ago now, the offices of Charlie Hebdo was attacked and the creatives killed by somebody intent on protecting the image of the Prophet Muhammad. Now the question that arises is, is freedom of expression and who has authority to police it? Rushdie, with a fatwa on his head, felt the images of India in the slumdog millionaire were offensive, but maybe not as offensive as what earned him the fatwa. The guys who shot up Charlie Hebdo's office and the studio felt offended enough to kill those offending religion by cartooning the prophet. Now, does the freedom of expression allow for offending others? Now, freedom of offending is not among those fundamental freedoms like the freedom of expression and the freedom of conscience and other such freedoms. But even if it is not, is there justification for killing somebody because their views offend you? Is it possible that one could express their freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, without necessarily going out of their way to offend the other person. And the moment that one actually does cause offense, have they not crossed the line? Because freedom of expression should not be misconstrued to think that it is actually the freedom to offend. If you cannot offend someone in a face-to-face conversation, why would you do it in the context of creative writing or making a movie, or making a cartoon. I think that it is important that we review the idea of freedoms, especially the freedom to offend.
Today, I would wish for us to reflect on the happy city. Is it possible to design for happiness? Can you put together elements in a physical environment in such a way that the resultant environment delivers happiness? It is a fascinating thought, but you might be surprised to know that there are many people who believe you can. The celebrated mayor of the capital city of Corobia, Bogota, Mr. Enrique Penalosa, is said to have campaigned and won the mayorship on the promise to give the people a happy city, a city that gives people dignity and makes them feel rich. That's quite a promise from a politician. Nevertheless, it is generally agreed that in his tenure, Mr. Penalosa actually delivered on this promise. He gave people a happy city. So how did he do that? To make a happy city, you really do not need to focus on any radical goals. At the end of the day, happiness will be in the way we relate to each other as citizens of the city and how we physically express that relationship. Yes, indeed. When we build happy places for us to live in, their character will be discernible to the naked eye. One of the analysts of Penarosa's approach was able to summarize the goals of a happy city as follows. One, the city should strive to maximize joy and minimize hardship. The planners and decision makers of the city must empathize with the lives we live. They must respond to our practical needs, which may be as simple as providing proper sanitation in public areas or more complex issues like formulating transport options for the population to move around. Two, we should be able to move freely and live our lives as we wish. Our city should not be a place of fear. We need to feel secure as we go on about our daily lives without running into conflicts of any kind. Three, the city should allow us to achieve economic stability and to participate in the economy in a meaningful way. This means that city leaders must think harder about fairness in space use and other common aspects of city life. There were a few other goals uh, emulated by this analyst. But for me, the most important goal is a focus on strengthening the sense of community, nudging people to form and strengthen bonds between them, which opens our minds to the common destiny that we share. Whereas none of these goals sound radical, they seem to escape the minds of our planners. It is important to remember that whatever big and expensive projects may be formulated in the towns and cities, they should have the goal to make us all feel better. They should raise our sense of self-esteem and dignify our daily lives. The pursuit of happiness is an interesting and deep subject. Let us summarize this episode by revisiting a brief episode of Enrique Penarosa's interactions. And what our needs for happiness? He once asked, we need to walk just as birds need to fly. We need to be around other people. We need beauty. We need contact with nature. And most of all, we need not to be excluded. We need to feel some sort of equality. And let us meet in the next episode as we explore more ideas about the urban environment. Thank you. And now for this week's excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. So Raila married Omindo, the daughter of Otengo of Konya Kajulu, 
and together they worked in the fields to raise animals for her dowry. Of this marriage, there were six sons and two daughters. Raila combined providence with frugality. He had a premonition that a great famine was approaching, so he and Omindo dug a deep hole in the center of their hut where they buried a pot and stored a portion of the grain from every harvest. The famine did come, and the neighbors were astonished that this poor man could feed his family. We children had this story recounted to us for the moral that without the land, none of us could survive, and we should not fail each morning to go to work on our plots. Raila's sons were Oburu, Ngire, Omuodo, Otengo, Amolo, and Ajoma. It was the last born Ajoma who married my mother. But Ajuma died shortly after the birth of their second child. My grandfather had taken a second wife after Omindo, and by this marriage had produced three sons, Ocheng, Odinga, and Raila, named after himself. When Ajuma died, his half-brother Odinga took my mother into his household, according to the tradition that the widow is cared for by her brother-in-law. Odinga had two previous wives, so my mother became his third. I was born of that union. In all, we were three brothers and two sisters in our mother's house. Of my uncles, Oburu was the administrator, a liberal and popular man. Ngire was a strict disciplinarian who dealt ruthlessly with mischievous gossiping women. Omuodo was a man of justice, chosen by his brothers as a leader to judge village cases and to solidify the people of the village. It was Omuodo, above all, who was the unifying force among his brothers and their respected chairman. I was Omuodo's favorite. I had always to be at his feet. He called me to bring his fire for smoking, to fetch his food, and we ate together in his small office house. Omuodo was the leader, not only of our family, but of all the families in our neighborhood. He was stern and ruthless when dealing with transgressors, and I pitied those who fell foul of his judgment. But though he was strict and quick to act against the lazy, he showed no partiality towards his sons or those of his brothers, but laid down the law fairly against relative and outsiders alike. In among the thick hillside vegetation of the Sakwa area lie fields of maize and millet, and clusters of homesteads of thatched huts. Our village, like all Lua villages, was neatly fenced out by the euphorbia trees, or ojok, as we call them. Inside the circular village were 20 neatly built huts, forming a concentric circle within the fence. In the center were four small huts, which were regarded as the headquarters of the elders of the village. The one in the center was the duel or office of the Jaduangdala, or chief elder. He was Omuodo Alogo. Next to this hut was the office of Odinga, my father, and that of Oteke, the uncle of Omuodo Alogo. The fourth belonged to a friend who had married one of our sisters and come to live in our village. Each hut in the village represented one woman. Elder Omuodo Alogo had six women. Odinga had five. Oteke had three, and so on. In all, there were 36 children in the village. Omodalogo was regarded as owner of the village, leader and lawmaker and giver of orders. He had to consult with the other elders and they formed themselves into a kind of cabinet to regulate village life and maintain discipline. 
head of our family, head of the village, and accepted as leader of the surrounding villages was Omodo Alogo, and by virtue of his leadership, our home became the headquarters of our area. Many people called on us each day. They came to discuss a problem with Omodo Alogo or to attend a meeting he called. Though Omodo's father and grandfather had been poor people, he was well-to-do by African standards. He was also generous and refused no one in need of a dowry who had no animals of his own. He gave frequent beer parties, and from the songs about him, I knew he was praised for his charity, wisdom, and far-sightedness. I was with the murder during the 1918-1919 famine called the Kanga, and I have never forgotten his action. He would fetch me late every night and take me from granary to granary to examine the food stocks. When we found a granary with little left in it, he would direct me to a granary which had plenty, and we would replenish the almost exhausted store. When I asked him why he did this, he said we should be kind to those who had nothing. Women with many children had greater need, and to prevent argument over food shares, he thought it best to arrange a redistribution himself by night. When it came to disciplinary action, Omwodo was cruel and ruthless. But when he was ill, people came long distances to see him and wish for his speedy recovery. He died one evening in 1934, and many people came to mourn, taking off all their clothes and dabbing themselves with ash, the dress of mourning, in ceremonial tribute and respect for Omwodo. The weeping and the wailing went on all night, and I recall the grim scene for many years. Chemsha Bongo is an acute media production.